Let's start chapter 24, the book of Genesis. This is a long chapter, and it's about the son of Abraham, the covenant son, Isaac, um, getting a wife. But it's not how you and I would think about that today. Because in the ancient world, the ancient Near Eastern world, marriages were pretty much arranged by parents. Love didn't precede the marriage. Love followed the marriage. You fell in love after you were married. Rarely did it happen before you were married, which is, uh, and I've done premarital counseling with some young folks. Uh, even I did my kids. My, I did their premarital counseling. But I remember Joanna saying, are you sure about that, Dad? And I, it's like, that's my daughter. She, whenever she has a question, she doesn't hold back. She fires it off. So I said, well, yes. And I always use this as an example. Abraham sends a servant of his. It could be Eliezer, who's mentioned way back in chapter 15. The servant isn't named here. We're just assuming it's probably Eliezer. We don't know for sure. Sends him back to his home. Now, there are two major themes two major themes of this chapter that I want you to be focused on with me. First, now I've, I've talked about this word before. I'm going to write it up here again. This word appears a number of times in this chapter. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's a guttural pronunciation, chesed. I'm not asking you to learn how to pronounce it. But that is real, that's probably one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It just appears over and over and over and over again. Translating it is always hard. It's been hardly translated with one word, but usually it's usually it's translated with something like. What is the matter with the marker? Moments that here. Ah, loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated covenant love or sometimes covenant loyalty. So this word, and you, I will, I already mentioned it in previous chapters, but we're, I'm going to be talking about this a lot in, in the remaining chapters of the book of Genesis. It just keeps coming up. And indeed, if you go through the Old Testament uh, it, it's one of the most important words because it is defining God's covenant loyalty toward his people. Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and this little Hebrew word chesed represents in one word that dimension of, of God. The other part of this chapter that we want to especially note and give focus to is that the absolutely amazing evidence of God's providence in this situation. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about when we use the word providence. Um, God's providence, it is a dimension of God's sovereignty, but God's providence means God intervening, leading, and accomplishing his purposes in history. So what you will see in this chapter, chapter 24, is the astonishing providence of God, God directing, leading, overseeing the choice of Rebecca as the wife 
of Isaac. Is that different from sovereignty? It's a dimension of God's sovereignty. <clears throat> I, I, and it's a very, very important word theologically, but um, sovereignty means God rules, God reigns, etc. But providence is how God rules and reigns in human affairs. He's providentially guiding, providentially superintending. See, we're not robots. We're not marionettes where he just starts pulling the strings. That, that's, that's not how the Bible describes human beings responding or not responding to what God's doing. And so it's just, you could say, another, this would be a, a kind of a human-oriented way to say it. It sure looks like a whole bunch of coincidences here. You know, just a whole bunch of coincidences, okay? But the only problem is coincidence brings up the idea of chance, a randomness. That's not God's providence. As a matter of fact, this is maybe a bold statement, but I actually think it's an accurate statement. In God's dealings with us, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Now that's kind of, okay, you can... You can shake your head at that if you're having a good day and everything's going well. But what if you have a bad day or you have a bad accident or one of your loved ones gets really sick or you lose your job or some catastrophe occurring? I don't want to keep suggesting all the terrible things that could happen, but you, then you, you are challenged. Okay, is that a coincidence? Chance? Did God cause this? Did God allow it? Why did he? So the term providence captures all of this. It's God's superintending all the events to accomplish his purposes. What do you? I, um, I previewed this, uh, studied it. Good, good. And, uh, and it looked to me like, that God had a hand in all this and Absolutely. just orchestrated it, that it happened exactly like it was mm -hmm. supposed to. But um, verse 4 um, said, Go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Mm -hmm. It caused me to wonder how they could do that without incest or intermarrying. That's his relatives would be his cousin, uh, wouldn't be his sister. And then I got to thinking about Adam and Eve and how did they become fruitful and, and, and have children without straying into that family. And I, and I don't know if that's a history question, a bunny trail, or what, <laughs> but I was kind of wondering about it. Well, here... Uh, let's start with the easy one, first of all. Here, it's not, it is a relative, but it's a distant relative. And and part of the reason that Abraham wants uh, his servant, could be Eliezer, to do this, is he doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite. He doesn't want Isaac to, in any way, marry a pagan in the area where he lives, which is Beersheba, in the edge of the Negev, um, so it's it's protective, and it's to we we will infer because of how Laban and Rebecca and others respond that these are believers, these are people who know about 
and respond to and apparently are living with the knowledge of the true God because of how they respond to things. And so then you see, oh, now I understand why Abraham wants this. He wants his son to have a wife who is committed to the same things he's committed to and will not wander from that commitment, which could happen if he would marry a Canaanite. So this isn't, uh, you know, in terms of the genetic issues, Woody, in a marriage like this, that's probably not as serious of a threat as it would be like today. Second is the, uh, the other issue you brought up about Adam and Eve, and then even more specifically, their children, and then their children's children, <laughs> because they're all the same family in a real sense. And in a way, you would face that same issue with that, uh, with uh, Noah, excuse me, and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, as they then repopulate the earth in following the commandment of the Lord. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I can answer that. Um, I certainly can't answer it scientifically, uh, as I just don't know. You could, you could respond to it theologically. Well, God is just protecting this, or you could say, and this I am not the only one that has said something like this. Several scientists have argued this, that uh, at, in the very early years of the human race, the gene pool was not polluted at all. There was not that kind of genetic threat that does develop where it would be, it has happened, but it would be very dangerous for ch- the children of a, of a marriage where it's a brother and sister who are married. The genetic threat there is serious and it's very real. But how recent is that? Because in history, it is not on If you study the pharaohs of Egypt, uh, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt, they married their brothers or, or their sisters all the time. They did that all the time. It was a very common. Cleopatra, you all know her, don't you? That very famous uh, queen. She's actually the last uh, queen of Egypt before Rome conquered them. Uh, she was married to her brother. And that was, now, they also were very promiscuous and had lots and lots and lots of sexual partners all over the place. But, you know, it's just, it seems as if, the, as one scientist said, the gene pool is not as polluted as it is today, where there's that kind of genetic danger that there would be today. Um, so... It's about as far as I can go in explaining something like that. Verse 1. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. That's just a summary statement. You know that. And Abraham said to his servant, as I said, that could be Eliezer, who's mentioned in chapter 15, but he's not named here, so we don't know that, but it could be the oldest of the household, who had charge over all that he had. Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my, from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. Now, that sounds um, very strange, and it's, he says, put your hand under my thigh, which is literally like this. That's what he's talking about. That was a, in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was a common practice of taking an oath. Now, this relates to the progeny. This relates to the offsprings. This relates to what's going to happen. 
And so he swears this oath, and it's just it's strange. You would say, put your hand on a Bible. <laughs> but this was just it was an ancient Near Eastern way of taking an oath. Uh, it doesn't fit with anything we do, but that's, it's like we read in chapter 17 where the covenant was cut, remember, and they split the animals. This is just ancient Near Eastern practices. And the point is, I want you to swear to two things. Now, that alerts us to something. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the head servant is the one who helped the parents find a spouse for their child because they would send them somewhere. It's almost like it's like you're herding cattle. Go find the best. <laughs> Go find the best. I mean, it's just, that's repugnant to us. I mean, our kids would be absolutely repulsed if we did something like that. You know, I'm, I've, I've had a son and a daughter. My daughter, just one night I brought home a guy for her and said, Joanna, here's your husband. You're going to be married to him in three months. And she, you know, I don't know what Joanna was. She was a very strong-willed uh, gal. When I handed her off to Greg at, at the wedding, I thought, Greg, she's all yours. That strong, determined will, she's yours. You know, I've kidded him about that. But if the Lord hadn't gotten a hold of Joanna, she'd be in jail. I mean, she just, she's so determined and so strong-willed. But it's just, this was the norm. This was the norm in the ancient world. And still, in Orthodox Jewish culture, it is not unusual to have a matchmaker. Among Orthodox Jews, do you know what I mean by matchmaker? Have you ever seen um, Fiddler on the Roof? If you know, in Fiddler on the Roof, in that little Russian village, there's a matchmaker. Matchmaker, matchmaker, you know, that's a song. It's still around. And in the, in the Middle Eastern culture, whether it's Arab, Muslim, or Jewish Orthodox, you still have some of that. Love follows the marriage. It doesn't precede it. So I'm just trying to alert you to this sounds ridiculous to us and way beyond anything we could ever possibly imagine. But this was this the norm for this culture. And you can see what he's doing. He doesn't want his son to marry a Canaanite. They live in Hebron, which is not Beersheba, Hebron, northern Negev area where they live. Canaanites everywhere. I don't want him to marry a Canaanite. So now when he says, I want you to get, we're going to read this. When he says, I want you to go to, what does that mean? Now remember, and you can find that on your map here, it means the area of Haran, where when they were moving from Ur the Chaldees up to, they followed the river valley and then settled here and then came down into Canaan. Haran is where the family was. <clears throat> There's quite a bit of evidence this was the original homeland of Abraham's father and parent. They had relocated farther down the valley and then went back up here. But this is where he's going to go. I'm going to talk about the area of Nahor, N-A-H-O-R, which is another name for Haran. So he's sending Eliezer from this area, Hebron area, up to the Haran area, this area here. It's going to be called Nahor, N-A-H-O-R. That is a trip of about 500 miles. That's a significant trip. 
The servant said in verse 5, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? I might find somebody, but she won't want to come, Abraham said. See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, God of heaven. Great statement of God, the sovereign Lord. Who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. That is a very important statement. If you underline things in your Bible, that's one of those to be underlined. He will send his angel before you. The Lord God of heaven who directed me to move from my homeland and enter Canaan, promising me land, etc., etc. He's the same one that will go before you. So what is Abraham saying? It's the same thing we saw in the previous chapter. This remarkable trust that Abraham had in God. Eliezer, I'm sending you, if it's Eliezer, I'm sending you to Haran area where I'm originally from. That's where you'll find Isaac's wife. God will send his angel. Okay, what does that mean? God will direct. God will providentially guide. God will provide. Don't, don't take Isaac with you. God will take care of it. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the willing wife is not woman is not willing to follow you, then you shall be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, now you have the concept. Now you have the assignment. Now you have the belief in God's providence. Now what follows is just it's statement after statement after statement, and it just keeps repeating the same things. To emphasize what? God's covenant loyalty. He will keep his promise and his providence. Now, as we begin to study this, and I mean, we'll go through it fairly quickly because as I said, they just keep repeating the same things over and over again. How do we apply this to our lives? Certainly, I don't think we apply this and most of us, our kids are raised anyway, but we don't apply this in how you're going to find a husband for your daughter. Don't take Genesis 24 as the model for this. But what can we take from this? If God's providence and God's, God's sovereignty and God's providence was real in the life of Abraham and Isaac, is it real in your life? It should be. Let's turn it even to a stronger positive. Yes! <laughs> I'm sorry, I may get all the people at work here upset with my yelling, because I always struggle with whether I should preach. I keep going from teaching to preaching mode. But the answer is yes. I mean, this is one of the major, major lessons from this chapter is if God's providence was real in the life of Abraham and Isaac, is it real in my life? Can I trust the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in my life? 
Now, the obvious, the intended answer I have for you, and I think God has for you, is that you would say yes. But the challenge is trusting that. Trusting that God. Trusting that he is providential and that he's really, really superintending the developments and affairs of your life. Another way of saying it, and let's bring it to a real practical level, does God always have your best interests at heart? I mean, in faith, yes, we want to say that. But life in this broken, fallen world, life always is testing. It's always testing that. Because you just think, oh, particularly when something tragic happens or unexpected happens or, you know, the bottom falls out or somebody you really care about and the bottom falls out, you know, you you, you just, and it's this complex intersection of our responsible freedom and God's sovereignty. But this is not an original thought with me. But nothing ever happens to us that has not first passed through God's hand. That's why we use verbs like God permitted this, God allowed this, for a reason that we often cannot understand, and maybe sometimes we can understand it, and it comes with some clarity why this happened. It is certainly, the Bible uses this word over and over again, it certainly is sometimes a test of our faith and dependence on him. It certainly is an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Remember we studied James a couple years ago, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. <laughs> Next verse, because God is it, you know, developing you, your character. I mean, it's those uncomfortable but real teachings of the scriptures. So Eliezer has an enormous task ahead of him. He really does. I wouldn't want this job. But Abraham has said, swear that you will do what I'm asking you to do. But look, Eliezer, God will send his angel. The God, my God, the covenant-making God, he will send his angel before you. He's going to guide you. He will provide. And so Eliezer is leaving with that certainty. But he's going to have significant tests of this as he goes through this long section. What is, what is the role that you perceive using this example for fathers uh, of their daughters or their sons when they are considering marriage? Well, uh, there are a lot of ways I could respond to that. Uh, certainly, um, the specific of this, unless your family situations are different than anybody else I know in the West, it doesn't specifically apply. We send somebody to go find a husband for your wife, uh, for your daughter. But I do think it is important. Um, my wife did this much more faithfully than I did. From the time Joanna, our kids are adopted, Joanna came to live with us when she was four months old. From the time that Joanna became our child by adoption, Peggy began praying for Joanna's husband. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But she began praying for Joanna's husband. There was only one person in the universe who knew that who that was going to be, 
who was a God. So Peggy was talking to God. Peggy's my wife. Peggy was talking to God about Joanna's future husband. When Joanna's four months old, she marries him when she's 21 and a half. So for 21 and a half years, well, 21 years almost, Peggy had been praying for Greg. But we only met Greg about three years before she got married to, to, to Joanna. So what did she pray? She prayed that he would come to faith in Christ at an early age, that he would develop the kind of character, would develop the kind of responsibility that would serve the needs of our daughter. And he would just have that right mix, because as Joanna started to grow, we saw the strong will, we saw the determination. This guy's going to have a challenge being married to her if he's going to be the leader of his home. And so that's what she was praying. And honestly, I say this to the glory of God. He answered that prayer. Greg is the perfect man for Joanna. I mean, she, he is. He knows. He, 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 can, he can deal with her strong will and her determination, but he, he mellows her. He balances her in a really neat way. Not by being forceful and banging Joanna over the head, but by just the loving care, but determination, and just saying, no, honey, that's just not a good idea. Let's not do that. But Greg, no. It's just, let's think through the reasons why probably that's not a good idea, honey. You know, it's just, it's just incredible. And I think secondly then is as parents, exposing our daughters in church situations and all that to the, the kinds of guys that just will know and love the Lord. And, and then just the last thing is just throwing it up to God and saying, you got to do this. There's no way there's a living man that can possibly fall in love with Joanna. <laughs> She was beautiful, incredibly gifted, but she's so determined. I mean, she just Joanna, you, you think there's a mountain to climb, she'll climb it just because it's a mountain. You know, that's just Joanna. One of my favorite pictures of Joanna, she's two, and she's climbed, she's climbed up the, you know, she, she does like this, and this is wood. She climbs up this door that's hanging up here. <laughs> I mean, she just goes up. She has no rope, she just goes, you know, just, I took a picture and I said, honey, this is what we have for the next 16 years, this girl climbing. It's just Joanna. It's just the way she was. But now she climbs Joanna's, uh, climbs Greg's house walls, not ours. Um, no, she doesn't anymore. Does that answer your question? Do you see God's providence also playing out in the lives of those who are not believers? Or is it? The answer to that has to be yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I really don't know if I could say that today necessarily. I, I, I can see it to some extent in some people's lives, but certainly historically, you know, Jim. You know, one of my favorite examples is Habakkuk, a minor prophet. He's, he's absolutely coming apart as he prays to God. God, Judah is a mess. They're defying every part of the covenant loyalty to you. Idolatry, violence, immorality. Lord, why don't you discipline them? And he lives in Jerusalem. He's serving King Josiah. And God says, Habakkuk, sit down. I am. And I'm raising up a people that will providentially discipline you. Do you know who it was? The Babylonians. 
And so God used the evil, horrible, ruthless, barbaric Babylonians to judge God's people. Evil people being used by God to accomplish his purposes. So the answer to that has to be yes. God providentially accomplishes his purposes in our lives as well as in the lives of those who reject him. I just finished reading a book called To Hell and Back. It's a history of Europe in the 20th century from 1914 to 1949. If I mean, I don't know how much you would like to read stuff like that, but that book, that I haven't read anything quite like it. One, it explained to me why the European Union came about, but it also explained to me what, what can be unleashed, how much evil can be unleashed in a civilized, wealthy, sophisticated civilization. Because you know, World War I starts in the summer of 1914, August of 1914, and there had not been a war in 100 years. The Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815. There had not been a war for 100 years. It had been a period of relative stability. Enormous wealth was created. And you know, I don't know how much you know about World War I, but World War I was the first real modern war. They developed technologies to wipe out people. Gas, planes were used, tanks were used, machine guns were used. And they were fighting the old colonial wars, but using modern technology. And, the, and the, the trench warfare. And then 20 years later, they fought World War II. 40 million people were killed as a result of that war, let alone the Holocaust. There you see unbelievable evil in a modern, civilized, technologically sophisticated, wealthy civilization. I came away, if I closed that book, one, it helped me to understand why the European Union was formed, because they wanted to form a buffer to make sure that kind of stuff never happened again. And two, no matter how sophisticated and wealthy we think we are, that book reminded me of how capable we are of committing horrible evil. Just unbelievable evil. You can't, you can't imagine. I read through that, I just... Anyway. Who was the author? Um, Ian Kershaw. Kershaw. He's a British historian. Verse 10. And the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, in Hebrew, the actual term is Aram Naharim, the city of Nahor. Again, that is in the area of Haran. It's the northern Mesopotamian valley. Okay? 500-mile trip. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city <coughs> by the well of water at the time of evening, time when women go out to draw water. And he, now this is, Eliezer, assuming it's him, it's Abram's servant, said, O Yahweh, Adonai of my master Abram, O God of my master, please grant me success today and show your steadfast love. Hebrew word is chesed. Show your chesed, your covenant, loyal, favorable love to my master Abraham. So do you see what he's saying? You, 
my master said you're going to go with me. My master said you're going to send your angel before me. Grant me success. And he frames it around the covenant loyalty of God to Abraham. That's really important. Don't miss that. He's framing it around the covenant language. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, here, here's the request. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let your jar down that I may drink, and he shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed to your servant Isaac. By this, meaning by what I am proposing, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love, chesed, to my master. What do you, I'm, I'm getting noisy again, I'm sorry. What do you observe about what Eliezer the servant said to God in his prayer? What do you observe there? Very, very specific, isn't it? Isn't it, Lord, sh it? Lord, show me the girl here that's coming out of the town. Show me the girl, which one? No. This is very specific. This is exactly what I'm going to do. And if this gal responds exactly in this language, then I'll know. It's a pretty specific test. But is it not based on... Not as, 25 of, I thought it was quarter after, it's 25 of. Um, a very specific test, but it's rooted in faith, isn't it? The answer to that's yes. <clears throat> it's rooted in faith, isn't it? Again, the answer is yes. yes okay. <clears throat> All right. All right. Now, verse 15 down through verse 20, I think we can get through that. The, it's fulfilled. Very remarkable. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor. Now that takes you back to the very end of the previous chapter. Do you remember that? Or the uh, end of chapter 22, we had that tiny little genealogy. Do you remember that? And it just told us that Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. Now we're catching up to that. Because you already know this. What, she, what it's stated, you already know that. You know who she is. She's the son of Bethuel, the son of Micah. They live in Nahor, Abraham's brother. Came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. Very difficult word to translate from Hebrew. A maiden, literally a woman of marriageable age. You could translate that a virgin who had known no man. So she's unmarried. Presumably she's young. She's unmarried virgin. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And a servant ran to meet her and said, Please, the servant, meaning Eliezer, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she'd finished giving him a drink, he said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. She drew all of this for his camels. Verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. 
The idea, the, the language there, don't miss that. The language is Eliezer is just watching every single thing she does and every single thing she says. For what reason? To see if she is the one. As he has set up the test, to see if she's the one that's going to fulfill the test. Yes, sir. I just a little note in my study about yeah. uh, the, the, the women would often ask, uh, offer the water to the travelers, but rarely to the camels. That's and, right. And he was looking for that to see if she exactly. was a woman of service. That's right. You know, hospitality was a very common thing for humans, but not for the animals. And by the way, this is an aside. This is a real aside. But critics of the Bible would often mock this. There was no evidence that 4,000 years ago they had domesticated camels. Around 10 years ago, they found a major archaeological discovery in what is today Syria and then also in northern Israel, demonstrating that at the time of Abraham, about 4,000 years ago, there were hundreds and hundreds of camels that already were domesticated and serving the people in the trades of the ancient Near Eastern world. So again, I mean, because they, they, you and I read that, no problem, but people that were real critical of the Bible were saying, there weren't camels that were domesticated by the time of Abraham. Oh, yes, there were. Incredible amounts of evidence of that. So just because you don't, you hear some critics say, see, there's a mistake in the Bible. No. Sometimes I just have to take a deep breath and say, well... That's an old criticism, but archaeology has shown that that's not true. So if you ever hear anybody say that about Canada, that's not true. That's been really well demonstrated. Quickly before we finish, verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, and this is another reason why you don't serve camels, because camels drink a lot of water. The man took, man took a gold ring. The man there is Eliezer, the servant, took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, it's really hard. You can't assign a value to that, but it's about two-fifths of an ounce as a shekel. Two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels. So a gold ring and two gold bracelets. These are significant gifts. It, in a way, would be comparable to a an engagement ring. Again, this is hard for you and me to imagine because you know you expect the young man to get down on his knees and ask the young girl to marry him and gives her a ring. Well, here are the servants doing it, and I mean that's exactly this is this is a really amazing step. And he said, "Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night?" Whoa, he's being awfully bold. She said. I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Verse 26, the man, this is Eliezer, the servant, bowed his head and worshipped Yahweh. Why? Because his prayer had been answered. He set up a very specific test with crystal clear clarity so there would be no doubt as to which gal, Rebecca, which gal Isaac is supposed to marry. It's really clear. Verse 27 said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed, steadfast, loyal, covenant, love, 
and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord, and again, that's Yahweh, has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So, again, it's a long narrative, but the theme of chesed and God's providence. Very clear. Got it? Now, verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. We will run into Laban again in the life of Joseph. But that's coming up. Uh, life of Jacob, excuse me, but that's coming up. Now, one of the questions is, where is Rebekah's father? Because he's not mentioned. We don't know. Is he on a business trip? Is he away? Uh, is he sick? But Laban is the guy who now becomes a negotiator. Laban ran out toward this man to the spring, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sisters, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. Behold, he was standing at the, by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and the place for the camels. The man came to the house and unharnessed the camels. He gave straw and fodder to the camels. There was water to wash his feet, feet of the men who were with him. And the food was set before them and to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I've, had to, until I've said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. Okay, now all that means is Eliezer is saying, before I eat, I want to talk. I want to explain what's going on here. So you have a mixture here of ancient Near Eastern hospitality, which is, is not an uncommon thing to see, but you also have the sense, and I think this is inferred, that Laban and Rebekah understood who Abraham is. Because remember, Abraham is a known relative to them, Right? I mean, it's not like, who's Abraham? Who is he? No, he's a known relative. He's a He just doesn't live there anymore. He lives down in Canaan. But he's a So they know all this. So they're showing not only hospitality, but hospitality to a relative. So if I can just... Um, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. I cannot possibly get to verse 49. But let, let, me, let me say something here as we start this. I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become great with flocks, herds, silver, gold, etc. Okay, we already know that. Then what he does from the next verse all the way down to verse 49 is he tells Laban the story of what we just read. And it's just repeated all over again. Why would he do that? Why in detail would he tell exactly, with precision, exactly what happened? I prayed, she showed up, she did this as I had prayed. So why would he do this? He to wants to show that it's God back. Yes. To demonstrate to Laban and Rebecca's family, this, in the words of Joe, is a God thing. With what intended result? Take her back that they will agree to let her go with him. They're about to lose their daughter. To a man she's never met. To a man they've never met. But they know Abraham. 
So, I mean, he is rehearsing, and, and Joe nailed it, to rehearse all of this again for them to see God is in this. And that is one of the reasons, and if I can... Sometimes it's good to just allow people to tell the whole story again of what's happened to them. Tell the whole story of what happened in their life with this tragedy or how God met their need. Um, just to rehearse again, look what God did for me. In ancient Israel, in ancient Israel, they would do that a lot. We, we don't do that as, and partially because of time and partially because of our Western-oriented way of thinking, but they would provide opportunities for people to stand in the tabernacle or in the temple and just say, this is what God did for me this last week. It's a testimony to God's faithfulness and, and tell that story. And it, you know, we have, oh no, here's Joe again, not just Joe, the other Joe. No, here's Joe, whatever his last name is, not our Joe. Here you go. Every week he tells us what God's going to do, what God did do, and what God plans to do because he walks with God. And it can get it, but you know, it's a good testimony because we learn in the testimony of the community that God is a God of chesed. God's covenant loyalty to us is as real as it was 4,000 years ago. So Eliezer rehearses everything that happened to convince them God did this. And also that they're going to be willing to let Rebecca go. Because she's not going to stay there. She's going to go back with Eliezer way down to southern Canaan. So it's really, it's a fascinating narrative. And I hope, um, I hope, I think, I hope, it was worthwhile to go through this. We're out of time, I'm sorry. But what I want to do next week, if, if just help me to remember that, I want to pick up again with verse 34. We're going to go real quickly through this. I want to spend the most significant amount of our time in, um, in the great blessing that's in verse 60. And then we'll move into the death of Abraham in chapter 25. Okay? Thank you. All righty, let me pray here. Lord, you are, a, you are a God of chesed, that old Hebrew word. You're a God of loyalty and love, covenant loyalty, covenant love, loving kindness, loving faithfulness. Um, Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to depend on that. Help us to rely on that. And because you are that kind of a God, your loyalty and love is a covenant loyalty and love to us. That means your providence is real. You're not some absentee landlord. You are very, very involved in your world, and you're very, very involved in our lives. We can trust you with that. You superintend and guide and direct. We have to trust that. So help these men, help me, who's to be reminded, this is the kind of God you are, and we can trust you with our future. You will walk with us. You promise to go with us. You promise never to leave us. You promise to never forsake us. We can trust in your providence. So I just pray that you'll just remind each and every one of us, even when we face some of the hard times of life, the, the, the harshness sometimes of life, the hurt of sometimes of life, that you're still walking with us. 
This is a fallen world. This is a broken world. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt in it. There's a lot of evil in it. We're waiting for that time when the Lord Jesus returns and makes everything right. But until then, our task is to live for you, depend on you, and represent you. So help us to do that well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.